Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. Mark chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We'll be beginning in verse 18 this morning. The title of this morning's message is All Things New. All Things New. And this morning... As we gather for this Lord's Day together, we're going to continue on this idea that we've been looking at really uh, almost unintentionally, but then we all know it's guided by the Holy Spirit, so it has been intentionally. But we've been on this constant idea really since the close of 2017 uh, of having the best year of serving the Lord that we have ever experienced in 2018. Each one of us have the opportunity in 2018 for it to be the best year of serving the Lord that we have ever experienced in our lives. And one theme that has been continuous through all of these messages is a focus on Christ. Now I know that that seems like a generic idea for a pastor to stand up and say that we should focus on Christ. That should be painfully obvious, but... We're going to to look that that we need to have a focus on Christ, a commitment (coughs) to obedience in His ways that we might see Him working in our lives. And so today we're going to look to a passage, a couple of topics I believe jump out of this text at us, and we're going to look at it together this morning. So would you please stand in honor and reverence to the holy words of our holy God from the Gospel of Mark chapter 2 beginning in verse 18. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. And then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pull away from the old, the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Let us pray. Father God. God, we pray for what we cannot manufacture ourselves. God, we pray for what we cannot buy ourselves. God, we pray for what we could not bring ourselves. And that is for your Holy Spirit to run wild in our lives this morning. God, we pray that every song that has been sung was sung to your glory. And God, we pray that every word preached will be preached to your glory. God, you bind any spirit from this place that might hinder us from worshiping you. You take any thought from our mind that might captivate us that is not of you. And God, you change your people this morning. And God, we will give you the praise and the honor and the glory for all that you do. And it is in your sweet name that we pray as all God's people said, Amen. And you may be seated. And now as we come to this place, just to make sure that contextually we stay together, we need to remember where we are leading up to this. Now, if you have been 
participating in your Bible reading plan that we have adopted as a church. I don't need to preach this to you because you already read it contextually, but just in case you may have not gotten there this week, you're going to have another opportunity to to take off next week. I want to make sure we're on the same page heading into the end of Mark chapter 2 here. And, And so really the gospel of Mark, if you look at the entire gospel of Mark, you see that it is essentially a 16 chapter book that is broken up into two kind of halves. The first eight chapters are written as a way of, of Jesus establishing his sovereignty or his, his kingship or his lordship. The last eight chapters deal with the transition from Jesus establishing that he is king to Jesus going to the cross to claim his kingdom essentially. So it's kind of broken up into different chapters. So we find ourselves in the first eight chapters of the, of the gospel of Mark here at the beginning and essentially what is happening is Jesus and, and, and the writer of Mark are establishing that he is a sovereign king, that, that his lordship is in fact there. And so early he makes a chapter, uh, uh, excuse me, a mention as, after he heals the paralytic, as he's healing the paralytic man, he makes a statement of this. He, he says, your sins are forgiven. And so we say that, why did he say that to them? They brought him to be healed. Why didn't he say just get up and walk? But Jesus makes a bigger statement when he says, first, your sins are forgiven. And the reason he's doing that is because no one but God could say that. And the scribes and Pharisees picked up on what Jesus had done. And they'd say, who this man blasphemes? This statement could only be made by God. Who does, who does this guy say that he is? And then just prior to our text this morning, we find that Jesus uh, finds his way to Matthew or, or Levi in some of your translations it's written. But it's the same guy. He makes his way to Matthew and he sits and he eats with the tax collectors. And so the scribes and Pharisees, they, they say, well, who is this man that he's eating with the sinners? And Jesus said what to them? He said, I didn't come to call those who were already righteous. I came to save those who, who needed a Savior, those who were sinners. Another statement that only God would have the right or, or, or the ability to make. It wouldn't be a statement that a mere prophet could make. And so Jesus is saying things and doing things that establish that he is the king. And you ever notice as you read through the gospel that when Jesus goes about being Jesus, it just always seems to rub them Pharisees the wrong way. Uh, when he's doing these miracles, Jesus is going about doing miracles. He's healed a paralytic. He's already fed a multitude. He's done all kinds of things at this point in his ministry. And every time he performs a miracle, those Pharisees seem to be upset and rubbed the wrong way that he just ain't doing it the way that they thought maybe he ought to do it. They're too busy being upset with the fact that he, that he got, out of his, got out of his bed on the Sabbath to notice that he healed somebody miraculously. They are in the presence. Friends, they are in the presence of the Savior and they're too busy being religious to notice. That's just matter of fact what they're doing. I'm just going to stop. This will be free preaching, by the way. You don't have to pay me for this one. You ever notice that sometimes we got people that are just so religious? Just, son, I mean, they are so religious. They are eat up with all of the qualities of religion that they miss Jesus working right in front of them. They miss Jesus working right. Just He's right there working all around them, and they're so busy being religious that they just totally miss out on the Savior's presence in their lives. 
you say, well, well, thank goodness, that'd never be me, Brother Jason. Let me just give you a, a, a now, a now connotation, and if you feel bad about it, good. Well, that, that sounds like a really crazy idea there. <laughs> That's way out there. You, you, can't, you can't have a Nerf war with the teenagers. Oh, that ain't church. That's a nerf. You can't you can't have them come and have a nerf war because that may that one that that promotes something besides coming to hear a lesson. And two, it could promote violence. We may be teaching our youth to to take up arms against one another. That's that's a terrible idea, brother. But what if I told you? That far out there thought process of bringing the kids in for a Nerf war, that one of those little kids came to shoot a Nerf gun at his friend and he got preached to about Jesus while he was there and he got saved. Suddenly that far out there idea, Jesus used it to work in our lives. But too many a times we're so religious that we say, well, no, we won't do that then. Because it don't fit the mold of what we're supposed to do. My friends, Jesus can take all of these things and he can work them together. And we got to make sure that we don't find ourselves so pharisaic that we miss out on the working of the Savior. Now, I just want you to know that was pre-preaching. I didn't need you to be timing me yet. I'm fixing to go. So we, need to, we just needed to do a little groundwork before we get started. So the Pharisees, they get so upset with what Jesus is doing. To glorify his father. They get upset as Jesus is establishing himself. As he eats with the tax collectors and heals the paralytic. And so we find ourselves in a place where the disciples of John the Baptist come. And they ask Jesus a question about fasting. And this brings us to our first thought from the text this morning. And that is that good things sometimes are made bad. Good things sometimes go bad. And so if you read the Matthew's gospel account of this text, you'll see it clarified uh, here in, in Mark. It just says that the disciples were fasting and then they came. But if you read Matthew's account, you'll know that it's actually the disciples of John the Baptist who come to Jesus and approach him with this question. And essentially they say this, Jesus, why don't these guys fast like we do? Why are they not fasting like us and the Pharisees fast? Why are they not doing these things that we're doing? Jesus, I, I want to make sure we have a proper tone kind of, of how they're asking this question. Jesus, you, you, you are, you're supposed to be the Messiah. You are supposed to be the King of kings and Lord of lords and the Savior. You're the, the one who's supposed to have been prophesied in old. You're the one that, that John the Baptist made the way for in the wilderness, supposedly, Jesus. And so, Jesus, if you are the Messiah, Jesus, if you are the Holy One, then why don't your people do stuff more holy than we do? That's essentially what they're saying. Why ain't your people fasting? Is fasting not a good discipline, Jesus? Should we not be fasting? Why in the world don't your disciples fast? We're fasting. And essentially their tone is kind of condescending. We are fasting. Why eth not your people fasting? I feel like they used King James English. I don't know why. Now, here's what I want to be clear about. 
the Levitical law only gave one required fast. In Leviticus 16.9, it says that it was required that they would fast on the day of atonement. On the day of atonement, there was a required fast that was given in Levitical law. One day, one fast each year that was given that was required by biblical law. So, Jesus had truthfully every right when they approached him with this question, well, why don't your people fast? He could have said, because my people don't have to by the law. My people are doing nothing wrong. They're going to fast on the Day of Atonement. I'm going to fast with them, and they don't have to fast right now. But Jesus goes a little further. He says, hey, can, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's still there? Can, can, the, can, the, can those who have come to join in the wedding, can they fast while the wedding is still going on? Would that be proper for them to do? Now keep in mind, in this day, a wedding was a big deal. All right, we've talked about this before, but a wedding's a big deal in the biblical times. In fact, you know, we sometimes, particularly men, and you just don't look at your wives because you're going to get in trouble. But as men, let's be honest, sometimes we think of a day and a half, and that's essentially what we do for a wedding. If we do the rehearsal dinner the night before and the wedding the day of, we think of a day and a half celebration as, whew, that's too much. I may need to bounce out of some of these festivities. I don't think I can make it. Imagine in the biblical day, the celebration was minimum week long. It was at least a week long that they would gather and they would feast and they would celebrate. Now, all of you parents of ladies who have paid for a wedding, think about how much that day and a half cost you. Now, times that for a full week to feed people for an entire week. Okay? Weddings were a big deal. In fact, they were such a big deal that there was a law that was given in this time that you could not fast at a wedding celebration. Why? Because apparently there were people that went to the wedding celebrations fasting and they had this big long face on them. They said, no, I, I mustn't eat. I mustn't drink. I am fasting. And so they said, well, we can't let that happen no more. That's going to bring the bride and the groom down and these weddings, they're big deals for us. So they made a law that they couldn't fast. So Jesus is calling on their knowledge of this, basically. He said, imagine a wedding and you, you have the bridegroom would his friends fast while he was still there? Of course they wouldn't. They were there to celebrate the new groom and the new bride and their wedding. They couldn't fast while that was going on. Jesus is saying, you just can't go and not partake of the celebration. We might say who would go to a wedding and not eat the cake, essentially. But then he makes sure everybody understands. That he's starting, because Jesus does this with his earthly stories, right? He takes these earthly stories they'll understand, and then he twists his heavenly meaning into it. And he begins to call himself the bridegroom. Obviously, he's starting to point to himself as the bridegroom and the church as his bride that he's there to claim. And he says this, The day is going to come when this bridegroom will be taken away. That's when my disciples will fast. Why would they fast while I'm here? 
I'm here with them. They've no reason to long for me. They've no reason to fast for me. I'm here. They should celebrate that. Because one day I'm going away. And that, my friends, is when they'll need to fast for me. But I'm here with them physically now. It would be a waste for them to be fasting when I'm here. So verse 18 tells us that these disciples were fasting. The disciples of John and the disciples of Pharisees. So is that a bad thing? Is it bad that they were fasting? No. Of course it isn't bad that they were fasting. In fact, I would be inclined to say that fasting is a good, biblically honored practice. I believe it is a good practice. But somehow, they make it bad. So what went wrong? So first, let's consider some reasons why we should fast. And maybe even... What is even fasting? Because I don't know about most of you guys, but I've been in a, a Southern Baptist church most of my life, and other than somebody saying the word and us going, oh, man, here this preacher's going to call us to a congregational fast again. I might have to give up my cell phone or my Coca-Colas or my something. We don't really teach much about fasting, and I'm not going to spend much time here, but I do want to make sure we understand you know, what fasting is and, and why we should fast and how we should fast. So fasting, by definition, is this. A denial of something that brings you pleasure to pursue a more intimate relationship with God. A denial of something that brings you pleasure to pursue a more intimate relationship with God. So I came up with four reasons why we may fast. One, as an expression of repentance. Not as repentance, mind you. Fasting doesn't equal repentance. Repentance has to come first, completely separate. But sometimes you may be moved to fast as an expression to God. God, I'm sorry for what I've done. God, I'm sorry that I've not been obedient to you. God, I'm sorry for the way that I've lived. And I want to deny myself some things as I draw nearer to you in this season. Now, I want to be clear. Fasting is not a requirement of repentance. You may not be so moved to fast after a period of repentance. But sometimes you may be moved, and we've seen that biblically, that those were moved. They said, God, I can't believe I've lived this way. I can't believe my nation has lived this way. I'm going to fast (coughs) after my repentance. Two, fasting can be used as an expression of grief. Maybe it's grief over that sin. Maybe it's grief over the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's grief over something that's going on in your life. And you may be called to fast. You may be moved to fast that you might lean on Christ alone. Learn to depend on God alone by denying yourself from some of those other pleasures. Three, and this is probably the most common, seeking God in making a decision. Sometimes we fast that we might seek God in a decision-making. God, I don't know what to do about this situation, where I should go to school, whether I should take this job, uh, should I uh, date this man, should I do this, should I do that, right? Should I accept this position in ministry? God, are you calling me into ministry? God, should I sing in the choir? Should I do this, should I do that, right? So we seek God's wisdom, and maybe we're struggling to, to find the answers that we're looking for. 
And so maybe we would go into a period of fasting that we would draw nearer to God as we seek his wisdom. And four, an expression of a desire to see God's will done. God, I want your will to be done in my life, in my church, in my family, and I'm going to fast for a period that I might draw nearer and see what your will is. So those are four reasons that I came up with why we should fast. I'm sure if we put our brains together, we should come up with more. But essentially, here's what I want us to notice. All of these things had something in common, and it was a desire of devotion to God, either because I'm moving from what I was closer or because I'm seeking to do what you called me to do. So it's a desire to be devoted to God more than anything else. So why fast? Because we desire God more than anything. And sometimes the only way to get there is to deny ourselves from the things that pull us away from him. What are those things? Biblically, usually they used food. They would fast from food. I would say that in this day and time, we have so many things that there should be a laundry list of things that you might be able to deny yourself from and draw nearer to God. But, so why did the disciples of John do it wrong? Why did they make it a bad thing? Why did they become condescending in it? Well, they instead of making it about God, they made it about themselves, essentially. Instead of making it about God and the seeking of God's face and the desire to see God move, they made it an example of extreme religious activity. That's really what they did wrong. And you know, sometimes we do this, don't we? Not just with fasting, obviously. We take something good, we make it bad, don't we? You know, exercise is a good thing. I wouldn't know very well, but some of you would tell me that exercise is a good thing, right? Do we agree? Those of you that started a workout plan first of the year, that next day you might not have agreed, but if you've stuck with it, you're starting to agree that exercise is a good thing. But if exercise becomes more important than your other responsibilities and your family starts to suffer, or your work starts to suffer, or your other responsibilities start to suffer because you're doing too much of this good thing, is it a good thing anymore? No. Not for you. Not in that season. Did the exercise change? No. It's still just exercise, but you've made it an idol. You've made it a bad thing. Work is a good thing. We have to work to make a living. We have to work to provide for our families. But if work becomes more important than God or our family or our other responsibilities, work, no longer a good thing, right? It's become an idol. It's become a bad thing. Those examples are easy. What about spiritual disciplines, though? Even our good religious practices can become a bad thing. What do you mean, Brother Jason? Well, I think we would all agree that reading Scripture is a good thing. We should all read Scripture. We should be in our Bibles. It's how God is revealed to us is through His Word. It's a good thing. But if we begin to lord it over others and hold them back, well, what do you mean you didn't read this week? Not only did I read, I read seven extra chapters. Slacker. Not only did I read, but I read all morning long on my day off. Bad thing, right? Suddenly, reading the scripture has become a way for you to show how religious you are instead of a way for God to speak to you. 
Well, in my fifth prayer session this morning, I mentioned all of those with the flu by name. So, well, in my first one that I squeezed in in the car on the way to work at the stop sign, I just said, God, be with all the people that got the flu. My bad, I didn't do as religious as you did. I think God still heard my prayer, though. What does Scripture teach us about these things? It says to us, what? If you do these things to the praise of men, you've already gotten your reward. You sought the praise of men, and you got it. Congratulations. But that's where it stops. Make Christ the star of every show, be it fasting or prayer or exercise or whatever else you're doing. And that's how you keep the good things from going bad. So first, we recognize that good things can sometimes go bad. Next, we're going to look at the idea that the gospel is not a patch for our sin. The gospel is not a patch for our sin. Look at verse 21. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. Who in the world would put some unshrunk cloth on an old rag for a patch? You got a hole in the shoulder of the shirt that you've had for 10 years. That shirt has stretched, hadn't it? I don't know about you guys, but shirts that I've had for 10 years have stretched a lot. To their capacity, perhaps. So if I get a hole in the shoulder of my shirt that's already been stretched... And then I take a brand new piece of cloth that has never been stretched and put it over that hole and sew it in there. What happens when the new cloth starts to stretch? And the old cloth can't stretch anymore because it already has. It pulls away and we have a bigger hole. You guys get the idea. Jesus' picture here is that you just really can't, you can't patch a little Jesus over the sin in your life and expect to just cover it up and have it not ever be exposed again. If you try to just kind of cover things up with a little Jesus patch, eventually that's going to tear away and the truth is going to be exposed. You can't can't put a fish on the back of your car and make you a Christian. You You can't even tattoo Jesus on your arm inside a heart and be a real disciple of Christ. You can't wear a uh, what would Jesus do bracelet and it make you a true believer. Because he is either your savior and Lord and everything or he's nothing in your life. Don't have it both ways. He's either your everything or he's your nothing. We can't patch our sins with a little Jesus. We can't hide our sins and go to church and say the right things and do the right things and cover them up. You can probably fool me. I'm not all that bright. You can probably fool your other church members. They're not all that bright either. But you know who you can't fool? You can't fool God. He sees right to the heart of man. Those of you that were offended by me saying you're not that bright, I'm sorry. I did say I'm not bright either. You're very smart. God sees right through to the heart of man. You can't hide it. We can hide it from each other. You can hide it from your family. You can hide it from your best friend maybe, but you can't hide it from God. And who are you looking to please? Me? 
or God? Who are you looking to satisfy, me, the other church members, or God? We can't hide our sins. We can't patch them over. But you know what else we can't do? We can't eliminate them either. Not on our own. Jesus is the propitiation or the payment in full for our sins. He's the one who excuses our debt of sin, and we just can't do that on our own. Scripture tells us that there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is by the power of the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. I love that song. What's it mean to be saved? To be forgiven of our debt of sin and to be reconciled to our holy God. To be made right with God. How can we be made right with God? To be forgiven of our sins. How can we be forgiven of our sins? By Jesus Christ alone. Not by a Jesus patch that we get on the way out the door on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. But by repenting of our sins. Not hiding our sins. Big difference. Big difference between repentance of sin and hiding of sin. Hiding of sin means I cover it up in my back pocket when I walk in the door and I don't let anybody know what was going on. Repenting of my sin means I am so moved by how bad I am that I want to turn from that sin and change. That don't happen on our own. That happens through Christ alone. See, sometimes we think that Jesus paying our sin debt kind of means the the punishment has been written off. Kind of like if you get in trouble at school. I know none of you have ever gotten in trouble at school, but I may or may not have gotten in trouble at school a time or two. And you get to the principal's office and maybe the principal says, well, I know you mama, so I'm not going to paddle you. He said he didn't say that, but that's what he meant. My my punishment was just excused, right? My sin punishment, it's never been excused. I may not have to pay it, but it's never been excused. See, my friends, if God is a just God, and he is, then when he says that all sin must be punished, he means that every sin must have his wrath poured out upon it. So when we accept Jesus, our punishment isn't excused. It's paid by someone else, and that's Jesus Christ. But the debt still had to be paid. It's a matter of will we pay it on our own, or will we accept what Jesus did on a bloody wooden timber on a hill called Calvary? Jesus says you're mine once you've been saved. And the punishment of your sins was paid on Calvary's hill. And that brings us to our final point this morning. The gospel of Jesus makes all things new. Look at verse 22 with me. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine spilled, the wineskins are ruined. But new wine's got to be put into new wineskins. A lot of story about skin and wines right there, but essentially this is being said. In that day, they literally used the skin of animals to put the wine into. And when you put the wine into the animal skin, and you closed it up, 
The chemical reaction in the wine, as it fermented and changed, it would expand. And the skin would so expand with it. Now, just use your imagination, much the same as you did with the cloth. Those of you who aren't sewers but are wine people. Two of you grinned and admitted, four of you looked down. Just kidding. Use this, think, think of it with me. If a skin had been expanded to its capacity by the fermenting of the wine that was on the inside, it had already stretched as far as it would stretch, and then you put new wine into it and sealed it up, and that new wine began to expand. Use your imagination, the wine goes everywhere. Now, that's a bad thing because the wine was, was used for a lot of purposes in that day, purifying water. It was very expensive. It cost a lot of money. They used it at their wedding feast, right? The wine was important. You didn't want to lose it. So you didn't put new wine in an old wineskin, and everybody in that day would understand that. Folks, after you come in contact with Jesus... You can't be the same again. That old wineskin doesn't go back to the shape that it was before. You can't be the same after you've come in contact with Jesus. How do I know if I know Jesus? Am I the same as I was before I met him? I get that question a lot. How do I know? How do I know that I know that I really know Jesus? Well, are you the same as you were before you met him? Or has your life changed? Because once you know Jesus, once you know my Savior, you can't do what you used to do and enjoy it anymore. I didn't say you won't sin. I said you can't feel the same way about it when you sin. You can't think how you used to think and not feel a conviction deep inside your soul after you come in contact with my Jesus. Because you can't be the same. Why? Because he is a transformational Savior. He doesn't cover up what you used to be. He makes you something new. And you can't do what you used to do and feel the same way about it anymore. Jesus is telling something. We've, I, I've heard this preached from the angle of, uh, of, of the wineskins and, and what's put into them and you can't put the same things in them that you used to. But if you look at Luke's account of this same story, he closes it out in Luke 5.39. He adds this line in Luke 5.39. He says, Nobody, having drunk the old wine, immediately desires the new wine because they think the old is better. And so I feel like Jesus, with this, with this parable about the wineskins, is, is pointing out something to the Pharisees and to the disciples of John the Baptist that he needs them to see, and I think he needs us to see it this morning, is that once Jesus comes through, everything's different. Once he's coming to your life, everything's different. Once he's coming to your church, everything's different. And so we're going to have a natural desire to do what? What we always did. It's what Paul talks about. Paul definitely knew the Lord, but he said what? I struggle to do the things that I know I should do, and I always desire to do the things that I know I shouldn't. That's the great conundrum of the Christian. Why don't I do what I know I ought to do, and why do I keep doing what I know I ought not to do? I may have said that right. You know what I'm saying. Why do I sin when I know I shouldn't? 
Why can't I do the good things that I, I really do want to do good things, Lord? But it's so easy to sin. Why? Because we have this battle of the flesh. We always desire that old. We always want to taste that old taste. We always resist that change in our lives. We always resist that different that comes along. Why? Because we're comfortable with the old. We're used to the old. And we think we want the old. Jesus says what? I make all things new. So while we may resist the new things, to be obedient to Christ is to accept those new things. So how are we going to have the best year serving the Lord in 2018? To let Christ be our guidepost, to be the center and the focus, and to desire what He wants, and to be obedient to where He leads us. And let all things be new. Let us pray this morning. Father God, God, we see this little story in the Gospel of Mark. If we're not careful, we read those four verses. And we move on to the next. But God, if we look, we see a powerful punch that you've packed for us. So God, for those in this house this morning who know you, who call you Father, who are saved, who uh, have, have cried out and accepted you, but maybe struggling to do what you've led us to do, struggling to hear from you, struggling to know what you are leading us to, struggling with a decision. God, would you convict us this morning that we would come to your altar, lay these hindrances at your feet, and seek your face. God, if there be someone here this morning, somebody who's never accepted you, as Savior and Lord. Somebody who's never had the punishment for their sins placed on you, Christ. God, would you give them the courage and the conviction to stand and say, I will trust in Jesus this morning. I don't want to pay for my own sin. I want to take what Jesus has already done. And I want you to be my Savior and Lord. I want to be a new creation. I want to be made new this morning. Because Jesus, there's no other name under heaven by which men are saved. So help us to cry out to you this morning, Jesus. It is in your precious, healing, saving name that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.